Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope. Never Ever Give Up Hope is a show about people who have done just that. They never gave up no matter what. My guests have survived incredible circumstances and as a result they have the passion to help others who may be going through something similar. Some of my guests have overcome extreme poverty and are now multimillionaires. Some have overcome abuse, and my guests have been overcomers in these areas, and they share their story and what they did to get out from under that and to accomplish what they really want to do. Some have, as a result, overcome serious depression or disease, and now they're living free from those fears or from pain. All of my guests are really special. They are all fighters, and they're all winners. They just want to share their story and give us tips and insights on how we can overcome any type of trauma and learn how to survive, not just survive, but thrive. Never Ever Give Up Hope is now in over 140 countries. There are people that want to hear stories of encouragement and hope. I don't think we can ever get enough. Personally, every time I hear one of these stories, I'm encouraged all over again. I also want to thank all my listeners, because without you, we wouldn't have a show. Thank you for your encouragement, your kind words, your reviews, your comments. It is all very much appreciated. So again, thank you and welcome. With me today, I have Gary Surak. He is an entrepreneur an author, a public speaker, a financial advisor, and an American dream advocate. He is the CEO and top producing agent of Surak Financial Services in Canton, Ohio. And over the course of more than 35 years, he has learned a thing or two about money. And I don't care how long we've been here, how old we are, how young we are, I think we all need to learn about money. And it's a subject we never tire of. So I really appreciate Gary being gracious to come onto our show and to teach us some of his tips and secrets. He has helped thousands of people turn their dreams into realities, hence the American dream. Some of these people started with nothing, and he watched them go on to make millions of dollars. So get ready, tighten your, fasten your seatbelts, because I think Gary's going to take us on a really great ride. Welcome, Gary. Thank you, Carol. Now, Gary, I was reading over your bio, and you were not born into money. So you didn't 
have a silver spoon in your mouth. In fact, at one point you mentioned when you were six years old, uh, you remember living in a two-bedroom house, watching your parents argue about making ends meet, which I think is, is rather common. You were seeing your dad exhausted from working two jobs, and also that this created a great deal of stress in your life, of course, as a, as a young child, but also in the lives of your other family members. Did this motivate you to want to get more out of life than what your parents had? Or did you think that everybody lived this way? Well, I didn't really know. I, I didn't know what other people experienced. I know what I was experiencing, and I knew it wasn't fun, and I knew that it changed. But what you're describing, I have vivid memories of watching my parents have this envelope system. And again, this is back in the 50s. And they would have envelopes, and they would have different names marked on the envelopes, groceries, rent, uh, heat, uh, gasoline. And every envelope had money in it except when they didn't. And they had this whole bill-paying system, which my mom operated and my father supplied the funds for. And I would watch them or really argue over who was going to be paid, who wasn't going to be paid, what we were going to do. And what I realized is that my dad was struggling to provide food, clothing, and shelter 100%. And I tell people it's very interesting I ate a lot of grilled cheese. I laid around a, a lot of macaroni and cheese, a lot of hot dogs. Um, and it's funny, I still like all those things. I really <laughs> do. I'm a, and belt, bacon, lettuce, and tomato is one of my favorite things. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but we didn't have, we just didn't have a lot of food. And that's what happened. So my dad was really struggling to make a living. He was in a life insurance business. And he was just getting started and doing poorly. And then he went into the, uh, he had to sell shoes on the weekend because he didn't have enough money to really provide for us in life insurance, and he hated selling shoes. Mm. He would go on Saturdays early in the morning, and he would come home late that evening, and he would just throw whatever he made on the table in disgust, and he'd go to wash his hands 12 times because of touching people's feet. Oh. So it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty interesting. So I, I came up in that era, and then I had something kind of remarkable happen that I didn't really understand, and that is that all of a sudden my father started making a living selling life insurance. He was very, very good at it, uh, and he became very proficient and, and actually quite famous in the time. He was one of the top agents in the country, so we went from really not having anything to okay. all of a sudden living in a really nice house. It was very strange. So you watched that whole metamorphosis? Yes. And how did that affect you, or did it? I don't think it did, and I don't think it really resonated with me. I, I know this, that I've always, I was always kind of close to my money. I always knew that what I had, I kind of wanted to keep. I was a great saver when I was a little kid. I'm still a good saver. And I think that really came through from the roots of watching my family struggle and watching mm -hmm. how things evolved. I, I really bit into the system. I said, okay, this is what I have to do, and I follow it today still. Now, your book, which we're going to be talking about uh, shortly, regarding the American dream. First of all, tell us what the American dream is and when you came up with this idea and why. Well, the American dream, first of all, I, you, you and I had a little <laughs> offline conversation about the American dream, and you hit it right in the head. Everybody's American dream, and I mean literally everybody's, is different, and, and they may not be tremendously different, but they're different. There might be some that have a similar dream, but quite frankly, 
I, I interviewed 25 people from my book, The American Dream Revisited, and what I found is I got 25 very different stories. Really? 25 different people telling me what they thought their American dream was. I only used 13 of the stories, but there are people that came from other countries. Their view of the American dream, totally different than someone who grew up here. I had an old order Amish farmer who actually was an amazing man. He uh, left the order at eight. At, well, he stopped school at eight I think eighth grade, and then he moved off the farm at age 23, started his own company. At the peak of his company, he had 1,900 employees, factories across the country, and did $186 million in sales <laughs> uh, with an eighth grade education. But his idea of the American dream was very different, and his idea was, again, food, clothing, and shelter. He quit his job on the farm where he had everything he needed because they didn't have anything as Amish. And all of a sudden, he needed to buy things and have a house and do things he never dreamed of. It's just been fascinating talking to people what the American dream is. So to answer your question, I believe the American dream is all about opportunity. I, I just think that's what it really is. I think we provide amazing opportunities for those willing to take the chance and look and work hard. It's, it's there. It's not a walk in the park. There's not gold paved on the streets. You, you really have to earn it. But it's there and it's available. And that's what the people I interviewed, all of them, <laughs> none of them were rich when they started. Some ended up very rich. Did you only interview people from America? No, I actually didn't. I, I interviewed people from all, well, I had one man who was a gentleman who survived seven Holocaust camps. He was from Poland. Oh, my and goodness. Yeah, he ended up becoming a doctor in Canton, Ohio, which is kind of ironic, but that's the way it worked. I interviewed people from all parts of the country. I had someone from South Africa, an Indian from South Africa. I, I really interviewed a lot of different people from a lot of different nations, trying to get a, a feel for who they were. I remember interviewing someone from Sri Lanka, and I interviewed someone from Laos. and Just fascinating. Didn't use their stories, either of them, because they didn't really fit my book, what I was trying to accomplish, but they were still good stories. Yes. So when you say the American dream, the reason I asked you that question is it's just not a dream of Americans. <laughs> no, it's not. But it's very funny. I, I've done interviews in Australia, Zimbabwe. I did one in Vancouver just uh, yesterday. I did one in Jamaica. I did one in uh, Tobago. I've, I've done interviews really all over the world, and everybody jumps on my case about the American dream not being just an American dream. Oh. <laughs> And they really do and say, hey, it should be called the world dream. And I said, well, not really. It's the American dream. And it was kind of funny. But, yeah, it's, it's been interesting. Well, the reason is, I think, because American dream is, is, is an expression that people understand. Yes. It doesn't necessarily mean it's only in America. But I just wanted to clarify that, and I thank you for that. Now, you state that one of the most important lessons of your career you learned from your father. He said, my job isn't to make as much money as I can. It's to help the other person in the room accomplish their goals. How have you put that into practice in your own life? Uh, pretty much every day after I finally grasped it. I was a slow learner. So <laughs> I, I heard that message more than once, Carol. Uh, anyway, so uh, spending time with my father, I ended up in the insurance business with him in financial services. And we had the pleasure of working together for many years. He passed away 12 years ago. 
But my father's wisdom was kind of amazing. He had a remarkable way of getting to the point and without much uh, fluff around it. So he was very direct. But what I did learn from him is that that's really what our job is. And the funny thing about it is as soon as I really got that through my very thick skull, what I learned is that I was helping people and I actually started earning a much greater living than I ever earned when I was trying to earn a living. Isn't that amazing? Because it's reciprocal, isn't it? Totally. All I had to do was stop thinking about Gary and start thinking about the person in the room that wasn't Gary and do work for them and not worry about me. And then it just fell into place and it's really never stopped falling into place ever since then. And it's, it's a long time ago I learned that lesson. Painful lesson to learn, by the way. But once I learned it, it really has made all the difference in my career. Why don't you expound on that a little more? Give a little more detail, maybe give a little bit, um, some examples, you know, how people can apply that. Well, it, it's just real simple. There's a whole lot of people that wake up in the morning thinking about how much money they're going to make or how they're going to make money. And they're so focused on themselves making money, they're not focused on helping other people solve their problems. And what I learned is that I could be very successful if I worked with other people helping them solve problems. It made me feel better at the end of the day. And then remarkably, and I do say this sincerely, I just started making way more money by helping other people solve their problems. I just stopped focusing on myself and focused on them. And by the way, I became a much better problem solver. And I've heard a whole lot of problems in my 35 years. No kidding. Um, so there's been plenty of people that come across the room and, and sit in my conference room and talk to me and things that I can't ever repeat. But I just sit there and say, wow, I can't believe I just heard that. But, <laughs> you know, you just say, really? And uh, But that's the way it works. So my problem-solving skills got better, and as they got better, my income went up dramatically. And it, and really, that's what I do today. I mean, I had three people I met with today, and all of them were problem-solving events. And you love doing it. Absolutely. It's, and that it's the comes, most fun. And it, that comes across, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, it does. And so yeah. that that's why people will open up to you as well. So I can, I can certainly understand that. And you're there with a willing heart to help them. Amazing. Well, it's just one of those things where it's, you know, everybody has their purpose in life. And I figured out my purpose is to help people solve problems. I can't do it for them. I can only make suggestions. And that took me a while to figure that out because I was so engaged, I was trying to do it for them, and it finally dawned on me that wasn't working at all. I just have to present it. As my father used to say, hey, you can lead them to water, you can't make them drink. Right. And it took me a while to figure that one out too, but I finally did, and it made it much easier. So problem solver is different than a fixer. Oh my God, yes. That's a good distinction because I have a problem in that I'm a fixer. And so you want to take on the the other person's problems you want to hold their hand and fix it for them and i i'm learning in my youth <laughs> mm-hmm. that you can't necessarily do that so what you're saying i i'm really resonating with me so thank you oh you're welcome and, and it's resonating with you because it resonated well with me too because i was doing the same thing and only when i realized that i was just exhausted at mm-hmm. the end of the day trying to help people solve problems that they weren't willing to fix themselves, that I finally say, okay, I'm done. I'm just going to give them solutions and send them on their merry way, and hopefully they'll be smart enough to do what I told them to do. So let's talk about your book. Explain a little bit what it's about, what type of book it is, um, who who should buy it. Well, the book happened totally by accident. 
I'm I'm a coffee drinker. I drink mochas, and I drink them only seven days a week, and that's pretty much because there's not eight days in a week. So <laughs> I find my way to coffee shops every morning, and there's four of them on my way to work, which happens to be about five minutes, but there are four different coffee shops I frequent. One morning, I stopped in a coffee shop called Karma Cafe. <clears throat> I go in. I'm working on my schedule. I'm thinking about my day, my week, my month, my life, whatever I was thinking about. I don't remember. But I was definitely working on something that day. And four college students came in and sat right behind me in this cafe. And they ordered coffee, and they sat down and started talking. Well, they started talking about the American dream, mm. which really piqued my interest. And then the conversation got a little bit nasty. One of them called it the American disaster and said, you know, I'm really frustrated. I have, car- I have credit card debt. I have college debt. The job market's awful. I'm never going to get a job. I'm never going to pay this off. And, and then two of the others joined in and agreed with him. And the fourth person finally chipped in and said, you know, I, I don't agree with you guys. He said, I think that I'll graduate college. I'll get a good job. I'll pay off my cards, I'll pay off my school loans, and I'll have a great life. Well, they shut him down in seconds, Mm. and I listened to that, and I found that very disturbing. As I told people that day, and I meant this literally, I walked out of the Karma Cafe with very bad karma. And about three or four nights later, at four o'clock in the morning, I woke up and decided I would write this book because I couldn't let those college students think, that's what it's supposed to be. I mean, it, that's such a young age to be yes, so negative. Yes, It really disturbed me, Carol. Did you ever run into them again? No, I had no, I didn't even know what they looked like. I wouldn't know them if they walked in oh, the room okay, today. Okay. I didn't look. I just listened. Mm-hmm. And when they were done, I was so discouraged. I just got up and walked out and didn't even turn around to see who they were. Didn't care. I just heard the conversation right, right, right. and said, this is, yeah, this isn't good. But it's funny and... That made me decide I was going to write this book. So I went on a mission and started interviewing people. And the kind of cool thing I did is I asked people I knew who was the most interesting person they ever met in their life and are they still alive? Okay. And and I got a list of a lot of people to talk to. So I started calling people who didn't know me from all over the country and having conversations. And that's how I got to do 25 interviews and end up with 13. You said they're all very similar but all very different. Well, they're similar because when I finished the book, I realized that they all had some very common traits, things that they really had that were in sync with each other that they would never have known. I didn't know that until when I was done with the book and really digested it. In the last chapter, I really summarized what those traits and qualities were, the characteristics. They just stood out. Can you share a story? Sure. Um, the, one of the, the characteristics that was very interesting is not your show is perfect not failing not not giving in to quitting not walking away and saying i can't do this they just refuse to quit they refuse to fail all of them i mean 25 people i interviewed not one of them quit what they were off what they're after they all had uh, a focus they weren't going to be beat and that was something that came out now it came out in everybody differently and, and to say they didn't have hardships is just not true. They right. all had hardships, every single one of them. But they were relentless in their pursuit of being successful. And that's why they became successful. Yes. So that was one of the traits. That came out loud and clear. Mentorship was huge. Every single one of them had one, two, three mentors, multiple mentors, depending where they were in their really? life. 
Hmm. Oh, absolutely. Mentorship was very, very big in the game. And when I talked to them, it wasn't something I focused on. It just came out as I read my stories again and said, wow, that was a mentor. There's hmm. a mentor. And pretty soon I saw there was a mentor in every single thing. Everyone had a mentor or two or three. And what do you see the significance of that to mean? Well, wisdom. You know, people that were willing to put something out and help you make decisions and help you solve problems who didn't have a, an agenda, didn't have a financial interest in your world, just wanted to help because they wanted to help. And that's the best mentors were those people. They were a willing ear. They were someone that had experience and they cared. And that really is what came out. I'll give you a great example. One of the stories I did not use Uh, And this person happens to be a friend of mine and doesn't live that far from me. But he grew up in a home with an alcoholic mother and an alcoholic father. And his home was totally dysfunctional. And they referred to him all the time as a bum. And he's never going to be worth anything. And he's, you know, not worth his weight and salt and all this crap. Well, the next door neighbor really listened to that garbage and brought my friend over and said, listen, don't ever listen to your parents. They don't have a clue what they're talking. He said, they're just a bunch of drunks. And he said, you need to understand that you're really a good kid. You're smart. You're personable. You got a great smile. You're going to have a wonderful life. Don't buy into that stuff. And that's what happened. So he became his first mentor. And my friend spent more time at his house than he did his own house because his parents were so abusive and nasty. That's a very good, very good uh, example. So a mentor comes in many different shapes and sizes, too. Yes, very much so. Uh, Actually, a funny thing is one of the people that I interviewed, her mentor happened to be an author who wrote fiction. (laughs) And, And she loved the character in the books. And she really, that became her mentor. And she referred to those books often. And it was a fictional character who didn't exist. Very interesting. That is very interesting. So everybody found them in different places. It's uh, unique how they all came together. So that was a big point. The other thing is, and I think this is really cool, they all had a trait in common that was unique. And that is that they did not grade themselves on what they hadn't accomplished yet. They only graded themselves on where they came from, where they started. Mm. So instead of looking forward and always trying to say, hey, you know, I'm doing okay, but I could be there or I could do this or I could be that. None of them did that. All of them said, listen, when I started out, I didn't have this and then pretty soon I had it. And then I went back and looked. They all graded themselves from the back end, which is huge. So they weren't beating themselves up because they hadn't gotten something that they decided they wanted. They were just accomplishing what they accomplished and patted themselves on the back and said, hey, this is really cool. I just did this. And they celebrated and then they moved on. I really appreciate you saying that because it's one of the things that um, a lot of my guests do and I certainly have done in my own life and that is use all the failures or what you may deem as failure as stepping stones and learning from that. And so you don't forget your past because it made who you are now. Oh, totally. And and that's the other thing. All these people failed so many times yeah. miserably. And and they still got out and ended up doing very cool things. So And that's where the determination and grit comes that you talk about. Yes, truthfully. So that's where it is. Back to your book again. Um who would buy it? Like who's it good for? Is it more just as an encouragement? Is it a handbook? 
it's well, interesting. Uh, that's a good question, and and always the publishers say, "Who's your market? Who's your market?" And right. You kind of guess, but in this case, I wasn't really guessing. My market to me was anyone who was trying to figure out whether they had a chance in the world. Oh, and excellent. this was a way for them to be inspired. And and for people who thought they didn't have a chance to read my book, maybe they'll change their mind. Maybe they won't. But if they at least read my book, they might have a shot at it. And they may say, hey, these people did it. I can do it too. So, so I think that's part of it. Your book could actually be a mentor. Yes. And and it was written that way. And it's, as it turned out, yes, I, I didn't really intend it to be that way. <laughs> but after talking to people and, and people coming, I, I was telling someone the other day, I was doing an interview, and I said I had something really interesting happen. Someone came up and saw me on the street who I didn't even know, but they knew me because they had read my book. And they said, hey, I just want to let you know, this is really cool, but you oh, helped me. Great. That's you excellent. have made a difference in my life. And mm. I said, okay. You know, that always scares me. But yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm saying, really? Okay. So anyway, they said, no, no, you don't understand. I was working on a project. I was about to quit. I've been working on it for eight years. And I read your book and decided that I'm not quitting. I'm going to go forward with it. And I just want to let you know that I just sold that company today for, I mean, it was a seven-figure deal. And he said, and eight months ago, I almost quit, except I read your book. Oh, what does that do to you? Uh, yeah, that I said, you want to buy me coffee? <laughs> and he didn't have time. But, okay. but, the, but the point was, isn't that cool? I mean, that's yes. out of nowhere. So that's, that's pretty nice. And again, why did I write the book? That was one of the reasons, yes. I guess, because, but I didn't intend to do that. I didn't really look to change people's lives. I just wanted to tell stories. And it came from your heart. And to me, attitude and heart are priorities because that's what people want. That's how they relate. Yes, I agree with that completely. And the people I interviewed all had attitude, purpose, and mm-hmm, heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were relents in their pursuit of success. So, yeah. Now, in the final chapter of your book, you offer seven key skills to help people on their journey. Which one is the most important, do you think? Well, I've mentioned a couple of them, the mentorship and the refusing to quit. and But there's one that came out that I just really got a I, I was impressed by, and that was humor. Every single one of the people mm. I interviewed, and I mean all 25, had a sense of humor about themselves. They laughed at themselves. Yes. They, yeah. they did not take themselves so serious that they just didn't see the forest through the trees. They just understood they were normal. They screwed things up, and they would laugh and tell me stories of how they blew this deal and blew that deal and how they missed this one and never saw that one coming. And But they were chuckling about it all the time. And I thought that was a really interesting trait. And then when I went back and thought about it, all of them had that trait. All of them thought it was pretty funny. And that was not, but they weren't funny at the time. But when right. they look back on them, they could all smile and say, "Wow, you won't believe how I screwed." I'd ask people, "So, what was your biggest mistake?" Oh my God, I thought I could make this work, and I didn't have a clue. You know, and one guy said, "Well, I just had the chemistry so wrong. I had this whole thing chemic." And then I talked to a guy. And he says, "No, nah, that doesn't work." And you know, he said, "Here I am. I'm a year. I'm screwing around with something that never had a chance." So he laughed at. It. He said, "Can you believe that I spent a whole year?" And he's just chuckling. And I said, "Yeah." I'm thinking, ooh, that would be painful, but he didn't take it that way. He just said, listen, education is how I got here. I just failed so many times. I figured it out the right way. As you were saying that, I was I was reminded of many years ago before I, I started getting into public speaking as much as I do now. I remember watching a comedian, and he had his, his cue cards, you know, in front of him. 
and he shared a joke and it bombed <laughs> and he just took all his cue cards threw them up in the air and he says well that you know that was i forgot his term exactly but you know well, that bombed yeah. and the audience went hysterical yeah and he just then he didn't have his cue cards in front of him he just began to relate from his heart and he be, he was very funny Mm-hmm. But you know, it wasn't canned. It was, it was, uh, it was real. And I think that's all part of being when you can laugh at yourself. It's because you're real. You see Absolutely. your mistakes, you laugh at them, and you and you go forward. Look what a dumb thing I did, rather than you know shying away and thinking, oh, I'll never recover from that. So you're teaching us that. I can see in your book, and that's awesome. Definitely trying, and I still do dumb things all the time. Oh, I, I mean, hope you know, so. Yeah, I mean, I'm not <laughs> immune. I, I manage them pretty much every week. I figure out something, oh, that was stupid, but I don't beat myself up over them for very long. I, I give myself the 24 hours. I said, okay, I can be mad at myself for 24 hours, and then I'm getting over it. Uh, I have a 24-hour rule, and I think that's been very helpful, too, so I don't want to I don't want to not acknowledge that I screwed something up, but I don't want to carry it with me exactly. for the rest of my life. So. Well, that's you learn from it. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, so your first book was If Your Money Talked, What Secrets Would It Tell? What an intriguing title. Share that with us. Okay, I'm on a trip to Las Vegas with my wife, and this is many years ago. And we took one of those charters out of Cleveland, Ohio, and boarded the plane. And we sat at the back of the plane, wherever, and everybody had assigned seats. And as we were flying to Vegas, the noise in the plane, the energy in the plane was unlike anything I'd ever been around. It was so intense. And people were telling stories around me, telling what they were going to do with all the money they were going to win and how they're going to retire. And they're going to quit this job and pay off their mortgage and buy a new car. And it was story after story. I mean, I'm a good listener. So I just listened. And my wife was reading. And at one point, I tapped her on her shoulder and said, you know, I don't think this plane even needs fuel. It could just take the energy from inside this cockpit. (laughs) In here, and they would just fly the plate. Anyway, she smiled and said, yeah, whatever. Anyhow, but I uh, I listened, and that was it. So we get off the plane, and we go to our own way, and I never saw any of those people. Didn't know them, and we just went out by ourselves. And I we did okay in a casino. We didn't get rich, but I don't, I don't go to a casino to get rich. I go to watch people. It's fun, mm-hmm. and to eat good food, and if I win a few bucks, that's cool. Anyway, we get back on the plane three days later, and we're all in the same seats. Everybody's in the same seats. And the difference in the plane returning is amazing because all these people who thought they were going to get rich were in dire straits. Uh, One guy said he had maxed out his credit card. Another guy said he thought his wife would divorce him when she found out what he really did. Another guy said he was going to have to get two jobs now because of what he spent. Some lady said, oh, my God, I'm going to have to refinance my house. I had it paid for. Now I'm going to have to refinance to pay off my debts. And it was just one sad story after another. In fact, I told some friends that day. It was like me being, uh, having attended three funerals and I was waiting for my fourth. Mm. It was just so sad and depressing. I got off that plane and the whole experience of these people really thought they were going to get rich by going to Las Vegas was astounding to me. No and kidding. over a number of years, I just collected story after story of people I met. And I finally put them together in that book, If Your Money Talked, What Secrets Would It Tell? Would it tell? And I told their stories. I changed their names, changed their sexes, changed their jobs so they couldn't sue me. But their stories are their stories. And they are all stories regarding? Money. 
<laughs> all about money and uh, credit cards and and uh, just everything you can think of that you could screw up with money that I witnessed and and what I tried to do is put some real simple common sense wisdom okay. on paper that people could then look at and say wow like I, I never forget I had a lady come in here and she had credit cards out the kazoo I mean she might have had four credit cards it turns out she was addicted to home shopping network oh dear and she was in Hawk for about $40,000 on Home Shopping Network. And her husband was there. In fact, she had so much junk in her driveway, she, he could not pull his truck into the driveway and in the garage anymore. And, and I'm sitting in the conference room with them, listening to the two of them go back and forth. And finally, I said, excuse me. I said, why are you really here? And he, said, and he said, well, I really want you to help my wife. And she said, well, I want you to help him so he doesn't bother me so I can keep doing what I'm doing. And I said, really? And she said, yeah. And I said, you know what? I don't think I can help either of you. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry. But I, I've had so many different people do so many bizarre things with money. It's incredible. So that book is a result of me just being frustrated. Uh, another good example, I had a, a young person come in who had serious credit card debt. And they said, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, here's what I want you to do. I said, number one, I want you to cut up all your credit cards except one. I said, secondly, I want you to stop buying anything unless you pay cash for it. And if you don't have the cash, don't buy it. And he said, well, that's not fair. And I said, well, I don't know what fair isn't fair, but if you want to solve your problem, that's what you have to do. I said, and then we'll start to chip away at where you're at. I said, but we can't do anything until you stop spending money on credit cards. We've got to get control of that first. So just common sense yes, stuff, Carol. Yes, and yes. again, I can't do it for them. I can just tell them what to do. They have to do it themselves. But it's... Again, probably an inspirational read, right? Oh, very much so. It, it's you, you look and you say, wow, that's ugly. And, and you could relate to what other people did. I, I had one couple where the husband and the wife never communicated about money. And it turns out she had over $87,000 in credit cards. He had no idea even existed. And the end of the story? <laughs> uh, divorced. Uh, they got divorced. But it wasn't without pain and suffering, and he's, he, it was amazing. I sat in a conference room with him again, and they're going through this, and she's telling me what she's doing and why she bought this, and it was just crazy. And I listened, and I said, and they didn't make that much money. She had 87 grand on credit cards, and he didn't even know they were there. So she filed bankruptcy, and it was a, it was a mess. Yes, but kidding. You just shake your head and say, wow, that, I guess that's one way to live, but that's not a way I'd like to live. So what is the secret then that your money well, the, the secrets, Carol, is real interesting. Everybody has a relationship with money. And, and it can be a good relationship, a, a, a moderate relationship, or a fractured one. And I've seen it all. And people that have good relationships really understand how money works and how it's a tool and how it can make their life better. And people in the middle are in the middle. And people that are bad are just abuse the hell out of it. And, and then we have real problems down the road. So we really do have relationships with money. And a lot of it's passed on by, by people we don't even know have um, are even teaching us about it. But we've picked, them, we've picked stuff up from them. And it's not pretty. As you're talking about that how, and, and what you mentioned about this couple getting a divorce, money really plays a big part in relationships too. Huge. Now, now, when you mentor people or when you um, do any coaching of any type or whatever, do you do it individually or as a couple for that reason? 
I do it as a couple because I think individually it doesn't matter. I think if you got them both sitting there, you can have a real conversation. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes I had to be a referee and say, listen, time out. I'm not a marriage counselor here, guys. I don't do that for a living. It's not what I want to do. But I do know that you better get your finances in order. And, and I put together something a long time ago called a money marriage agreement. And it's in my book. It, it's referenced in my book. And the money marriage agreement is really just a simple document where the couple gets together and talks about how they're going to bill, manage their bills, how they're going to manage their money. And they do it once a month. It takes about 15 minutes. And I can't tell you how many people I've had do that. They've come back to me and said, that was like so cool. Which because book is that in? That's If Your Money Talked. Okay. But it's if in, your, in that book, I just re, I really realized that if I don't give them something concrete to work with, they're, they're not going to have a chance. So I gave them that. I put that together. And it's a real simple document. It's a 15-minute-a-month meeting. You divide up bills. You work out how you're going to manage the money, how it all works. You have individual accounts, not joint. I don't like joint accounts, at least not all joint accounts, because I find people have joint accounts sometimes. Uh, one takes more than the other from it, and then they get bitter. Yeah. I just I had that meeting with someone today. And I said, you make a big mistake. You need to have two accounts, and then it'll be a lot less stress in your life. Now, your scholarship fund. That is very interesting. As I sat in Karma Cafe that morning, uh, I went back to Karma probably, oh gosh, it's probably a year later. And I was sitting in Karma Cafe again, drinking my mocha. And I was thinking about the last chapter of the book and how I had written it and where I was at. And I thought to myself, there's one thing missing. And that is I needed to figure out a way to tie back to those three college students who were complaining about their college debt. And I clearly didn't write this book to get rich. I wrote this book because I had a message I wanted to get out. So I decided to take 20% of the proceeds of every book sold and create the American Dream Revisited Scholarship. And we opened that up last year. We gave away our first scholarship in 17. We'll be giving one away in 18. And quite frankly, Carol, as I sell books, I throw 20% of every book into that fund. And we've got some serious cash in there. And we're going to get scholarships away for a very long time. And I, we'll see. But it's cool to me. I got my first letter from someone who got their first scholarship. And it was really rewarding to read her letter and how she felt about it and, and the impact it had on her. And again, I, you know, I didn't write her $100,000, but she got some money out of it. And it was enough that she took the time to say thank you and explain what she was going to do with it and how important it was. Pretty cool. And what kind of requirements for the scholarship? Basically, you need to be entrepreneurial. Uh, attending college or uh, some sort of tech college or anything that's entrepreneurial tech college. It's really run through the Ohio Foundation of Independent Colleges, which will service the entire nation. And when I use them, the reason I did that is because I really don't know much about scholarships and who to give them to and how to set them up and manage it. So I hired them and I pay them a fee to do what I don't really know how to do. And it's really very interesting. We had 100 people apply last year, which is really good. And this is a fascinating statistic. Of the 118 actually completed all the processes they needed to do to go through to get scholarship. So 82 dropped out before they even got to the end. Wow. Staggering. And I thought that is amazing to me. When I talked to the people I work with, their stats, they said, yeah, it's probably more than you think. And I said, yeah, I was very surprised. I thought it's not that hard. My requirements were not that uh, daunting. It was really reasonable. But 80, 82 people didn't think so. Crazy. Well, they wanted it handed to them. 
Yeah, that wasn't going to happen. Anything else that you would like to share regarding sure. your books or? Well, just- the books are, are interesting. They're on my website, which is GarySirak.com, and that's G-A-R-Y-S-I-R-A-K.com. They're available there. They're on Amazon. They're in eBooks and all that stuff, iBooks, all that. And the interesting thing about it is we've had people from literally all over the world buy the books and respond to it and I find that just absolutely fascinating so I'm like I said when Zimbabwe I'm doing an interview from Zimbabwe I'm thinking how in the world but (laughs) then again you know and I did one in Australia the other day and I said well that was interesting and your time is so out of whack it's crazy I'm 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 supposed to be awake in the middle of the night not such a good deal but anyhow uh but still a whole lot of fun and people are finding it somehow it's traveling on its own speed and we'll see what happens that's exciting. I bet you never thought that would happen, did you? Never in a million years. So, when did so. your first book come out? Uh, five years ago. So it's been it's been quite the ride for the last five years. Exciting. It really has. Yeah, it is. And, and again, you never know how successful you are because, again, I don't know that many authors and I don't know who to believe. But when I talk to my publisher, the first one I self-published, the second one I used a publisher. But as I talked to my publisher and he asked me what I did in the first book and how many I sold, he was astounded. He said, how did you do that? And I said, well, I did a lot of radio interviews. And he said, no, no. He said, that's amazing. And I said, well, it didn't seem amazing to me. I said, it seemed a little disappointing. But then again, I didn't look at where I was coming from. I looked at where I was heading and what I was aiming for, and I didn't get there. And he he said, no, no, no. Look back and see where you started from. He said, and so now people ask me, you know, are are you famous? And I said, well, my mother knows me, but I think that's about it. (laughs) I doubt that. Um, Not that your mother doesn't know you. (laughs) (laughs) She may not. She's 93. I'm not sure. Oh, okay. Really appreciate what you shared. I you you tweaked my interest in many different areas. I can't wait to get into your book. I hope that the audience will buy both books because they both are told from the heart. They both are inspirational and yet have so many tips and and tools to work with to accomplish what we all want, the American dream. And we all want to understand how to be better stewards of our money. So uh, you covered quite the area, you know, that that is very vast, and I appreciate that. But all, again, in the same vein, and that is money and money talks, right? Oh, it does. <laughs> and, it, and it's talking to us. We may not listen sometimes, but it's clearly talking. Christmas is a very interesting time to hear your money. So. That, well, you've heard, but is it a book or is it just a saying, my money talks that usually says goodbye? Is that, uh-huh. a, is that that's a, a saying? That's, that's a, saying. a saying. Okay. And All right. it's funny. Uh, yeah. Uh, how to win in Vegas, fold over your money and put it back in your pocket. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, you hear things oh. and you just sort of chuckle. So. Did you have any interaction with the people on that airplane on the way back? Or did None. you just were listening as well? I just listened. <laughs> I, I, there's nothing you could say, nothing no, you could do. No. It, was just, it was just a listening. It was. I tell people I go to Vegas because I love people watching. I love the food. I like the shows. And the gambling's okay. But on the plane, it was just so sad and depressing. I really felt bad for these people. But I thought, wow, why in the world did you think you could solve your financial problems by going to Vegas? I said, they didn't build those hotels by accident. They didn't provide all that. I mean, it was just surreal to me that they really thought that's what was going to occur. Well, they do a good sales job because people still (laughs) – Thank you so much, Gary. This has been 
really motivational and inspirational. I thank you. All your contact information, your books, everything will be on um, the show notes, your website. They can connect with you. I'm sure that you are open to receiving emails, etc. So if people want to contact you, they can do so through your website. And anything else you want to add in closing? My last thing is that if you read my book and like it, please put a good review in it. And if you don't forget that you ever read it, that's okay. So. Oh, I like that. Okay. But I doubt that will happen. People, I'm sure, will like it. You're talking about a subject that everybody, it's near and dear to their hearts. <laughs> yeah, it is. Definitely. Thank you, Gary. I really appreciate your encouragement. Thank you. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.